and it hits me, oh my gosh, this is that triangle. You know, there's explanation for everything that occurred in the Rendlesham Forest incident that doesn't involve aliens at all. It was completely silent. It comes right over our heads. He saw a classic flying saucer really standing in the clearing. He turned over to my father and held his hand and he looked in his eyes and he said, we're not alone. Hey, hello, everyone. This is Martin Willis, your host. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to the audio podcast. First of all, I do appreciate every single listener. And if you support the show now, I want to thank you very much. And I apologize that you actually have to listen to this. If you listen to a lot of podcasts out there, you'll know that there's a lot of podcasts that run ads. And I do get approached all the time to run ads. And when I started this almost 12 years ago, I vowed not to do that. But I do need your help as the show is quite costly. Some of the expenses are bandwidth use, website maintenance, graphics, blogs, audio blogs. And of course, sometimes there's travel expenses. I'd like to do more of that, go to conferences, things like that. If you can help us out for $2 or more a month, uh, you'll see the Patreon link in the text below. I would appreciate it very much. Thanks. And I hope you enjoy today's show. couple of announcements before we get started. Well, not really announcements, but uh, I just want to say that I do appreciate everyone that uh, tunes into the show. I do realize uh, that there are a lot of shows out there. As a matter of fact, since UFOs have become more popular or mainstream, whatever you want to call it, there's, there's shows starting up all over, uh, lots and lots and lots of them. So I do appreciate you coming over to us and watching our shows and uh, participating in chat, etc., and uh, there's a lot going on in general. I wanted to point out a couple of things, but I want to talk about our guest first, Mario Woods, Sergeant retired Mario Woods in the Marine from the Marine. Uh, I'm sorry, from the Air Force, was uh, was uh, involved in an incident back in 1977. He's been on a few times. We've talked about it at Ellsworth Air Air, um, Air Base. I'm sorry, missile. He was part of the 44th Missile Squadron Security Squadron. And he had quite an encounter. Uh, he has talked about it. We'll be talking about it a little bit tonight. But he also was um, reached out uh, by um, AARO, reached out to him. And I have the letter here. They sent him. His his uh, email address is blacked out. But um, but anyway, this is the what he received uh, to testify, to talk to him. So under oath, he went there and I believe it was April, and spoke for over four hours. We're going to be talking about all that. I think it's fascinating, and I really like to hear his perspective. I've asked him nothing because I like to hear these things fresh, and so I make sure that I ask you know, some uh, interesting questions that maybe you would ask if you're listening. That's kind of how I do my show uh, for the most part. And I want to show this, uh, bringing this in, because this, like I said, there is a lot going on right now. And uh, so this was, this is, uh, this came out the other day. And so there, the um, Senate Intelligence Committee has proposed amnesty to defense contractors for disclosure of non-Earth origin or exotic materials. It's approved UFO language, basically. So this is very, this is big, in my opinion. This is, this is big. Um, you know, I've been, we're going on 12 years on focusing on this subject. And this is just one of those things that recently has really moved the needle. And 
to, you know, people say to me, is this disclosure? And I hear other people say, well, disclosures already happened. Maybe it has. It kind of feels that way. I know it's definitely not going to be um, something that people are going to be surprised by if we all of a sudden know exactly what's going on. Also, uh, Mark Rubio, Senator Mark Rubio, uh, talked about that there's some other uh, high intelligence uh, government uh, agents that are going to be coming forward uh, more like along the level of the David Grush whistleblower, I believe. So this is all exciting news. I'm excited about it all. And uh, I really think that, like I said, the, the needle is moving and uh, it's ex an exciting time to study this topic. And I'm going to bring Mario in. Mario, welcome to the show again. Thank you, Martin. Good to be here. Yeah, it's always good. Uh, we've had a lot of nice conversations off off the air too. It's been it's been a lot of fun getting to know you, and uh, you you're will. a real stand up guy. And I know that uh, a lot of people are reaching out to you, trying to get them on their their shows and things like that. And uh, and you're being you know kind of particular about how how you did that. I I did uh, you know uh, connect you with Chris Leto who had you on, and yeah. uh, that was uh, another fast. He's such a great guy, and you know an Air Force guy. You two connected that way. Certainly so, did. Yeah, that was all. That was all really great. So, um, since you were on last time, you got this letter that I showed. This one here, and uh, and you participated. So tell tell us what it was like. Uh, well, basically, it was really just the entire incident from start to finish, uh, including names, uh, best uh, guess date that I could give them as close to. Thanksgiving is possible, which I've never nailed down a particular date. You know, I just knew that it was a week or so before Thanksgiving uh, when this occurrence happened in 1977. And most of all, I remember the temperature and I, and I, that's just something that's always been seared into my mind. And uh, we just started from A and finished at Z and it took four hours and 19 minutes. And of course I was asked questions just like pretty much what you ask. Uh, of course, I gave them names of every single person that I remember uh, that uh, were involved in either uh, recovering us or uh, transporting us or myself. My partner was in another vehicle back to Ellsworth Air Force Base, some 55 miles back to the east at our main support base. And uh, and then from that point, uh, everybody that was in the debriefing uh, with Commander Colonel Spraker uh, the assistant base commander. And of course, Rick Doty was there who I got confirmation from just uh, in the last couple of months, an email that he sent, you know, reflecting that he was there and he did remember it and that he was also uh, placed in charge of picking up our medical records from the flight surgeon's office, mine and Michael Johnson's, uh, which I have never gotten a copy of. I've requested them, but I've never received anything uh, of any part of this, uh, of that occurrence that day, uh, following the incident, uh, in my medical records. Mm. So somebody's got it somewhere and, and has it. So arrow is looking at every single part of this from what the way I understand it, it's being dissected, which is they're the ones that's going to find Michael Johnson. We that's what I was going to ask you about. If anyone <laughs> yeah. can find them, they have the, the connection. Right. That's what I, I, I challenged them. I put it forth that way. I said, first of all, <laughs> the other half of this equation is Michael Johnson. 
Yeah. So then he outranked me by two months. I don't know where he ended up. I don't know where he went after about the 18th day that he came to my apartment. And we sat down and we discussed everything and what we what he heard, what I heard, what we drew. I just wish I'd have saved those drawings. And I wish that I would have uh, been able to maintain his address. I, you know, I, I've, I've got addresses from people from long ago. And uh, I put his address and phone number in my Bible and, and I still have that same Bible. And uh, I just don't know what could happen to it. Of course, I've moved quite a few times then and went through quite a bit. But uh, Chicago understands a big place and a dangerous place. I just hope that he's still with us and I yeah. hope that Arrow can pull him out, you know, to uh, to sit down. Wouldn't it be something if he and I could sit down together at a table and talk about this again? That's right. I mean, does he have by chance, do you happen to know his middle name if it's an unusual middle I name? Do not. I just knew yeah. Michael Johnson. And as I said, that was There's the only a lot thing. of Michael Johnson's. Lot yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. Right. And a uh, real light skinned black fella, super, super nice guy, uh, educated, just, uh, just, you know, really a, a good air force security policeman all the way around. Yeah. And just think the whole situation overtook him as it as it pretty much did myself, but it affected me differently than it did him. Yeah. So I I want to just I want to go back into this in a minute and uh you know more of the discussion of what it was like. But for now, would you please um and I'm just saying this because there's a there's there are listening and watching right now are some people that have never even heard your story. And we don't have to go through the whole thing as we did before, but can we do kind of a nutshell for the person that never heard the story? And this is, and you went into four hours talking to them about what happened. So um, after you get done with the little quick uh, scenario here of what happened, then, then I'm gonna be asking you more questions about what it was like to testify. All right, I'll see what I, how, how I can do this. Uh, <laughs> This incident started on a particular night, uh, a cold night in South Dakota, right before Thanksgiving. The uh, temperature was between 9 and 13 degrees. There was snow on the ground, uh, a light dusting, but there were deeper areas, you know, because these blizzards that, that do hit, they just wipe across the whole plains area and you're up over a mile. So you can imagine, and the snow is extremely dry there. You can't make a snowball out of it. It's just like talcum powder. Uh, I walked outside just to take a break for a minute at about 9.15, looked to my east, and this is a prairie area. You it just There's there's no ambient light. There was not a, where Newell, South Dakota is located, we're nine miles north of Newell. This is north of also of Sturgis, South Dakota, by about 30 miles. Uh, north Dakota, I don't know how many miles it is north of us, but you just get an idea This we're the only thing out there. And our particular site is responsible for 10 Minuteman nuclear missiles. 1.2 uh, megaton rockets, Minuteman twos. Uh, I saw a strange optic off to the east at about a 30 degree uh, elevation or incline or angle in the atmosphere over you know the horizon at about 30 degrees, and it was something I'd never seen before. And you know you st you see the stars all the time out there, and you really become accustomed to to seeing them because it's so crystal clear. And, Clear nights, you can reach up and grab a star out of the Milky Way. You feel it's just that, just that clear. Hmm. And I love that about South Dakota. It's just beautiful. But I see this object, and I couldn't tell how far away it was, but it had a different luminosity with the, the light itself. And uh, 
just for fun. I, I thought it was bombers, B-52 bombers, because the main support base at Ellsworth supported a strategic air wing of, of ready-to-go B-52 bombers. And I just walked inside, and a buddy of mine, Bill Holloman, was on the phone. I said, hey, Bill, there's something out here in the air. I said, I'm going to, it's over to the east. I'm going to flash up facility lights at it. And I only did that because my father was a merchant seaman. And I know that ships use those signaling devices at night off the navigation bridge. You see it in Navy movies and all that kind of stuff, too. So I, I thought, you know, what the heck? Even in security police tech school, you're taught, you know, how to use hand signals and flashlights, you know, with certain signals for, for your own aircraft to signal them if you're in trouble or lost or what have you or need help. So I, I flash facility lights. I think there's 12 or 14 secure uh, can light cans on the facility. I can't remember the exact count, but they're about two foot in diameter. Remember, this is 77. So there's no LED lights or anything like that of luminosity that we have today in LED in lighting. Um, and I walked back outside and when I did, it flashed back. It went off, went on, went off and on a couple of times. Right. And I went, well, Okay, it must be B-52 bombers. The reason it wasn't moving, I thought they were coming toward me. Still had the same elevation, same incline, or say above the horizon, about 30 degrees. And it was, you know, if I if I outstretched my hand like this, it covered it covered them up, uh, covered the light up. But if I did my hand in a fist, then the it covered the object, but the light shone around it. And I did that a couple of times. So as I went back in the second time. I'm interested in what's going on here now. And Michael Johnson, my teammate, uh, which we had just met, he just we just came to the field that day. We were on a three-day tour. So there were six security policemen, a facility manager, four officers, two underground at any given time, um, facility cook, and a site manager. I think I said that. So there's there's six security policemen on one facility, four officers, facility manager, and a site cook. So as we were on duty, that'd be just two of us and one flight security controller, my buddy Bill Hallman, he was on the telephone. Uh, he was talking to his wife back in Rapid City or at Ellsworth. And uh, I said, Bill, there's something out here. I said, you got to come out here and see it. And he just he just waved me off. And, you know, he'd been out there longer than I had. I, I It just didn't affect him. So we were good friends. He's a great guy. My normal partner was home on vacation. Uh, he was going to get married in North Carolina. And... Uh, Anyway, um, so Michael Johnson and I, it's our first time we'd ever met or worked together, and we came out in the field that day. So we took the shift from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., 12-hour shifts. So I went in the day room, and I said, Michael, come out here and see this. There's a strange light off to the east. You need to check it out, man. And he normally worked on a different flight, meaning in a different area. There was three areas, the 66th, 67th, and 68th area. Well, this is the 68th area, the most the furthest uh, west uh, set of sites, uh, which were five of them, uh, were, were to the west, uh, next to the Wyoming border in, in that corner of Montana and North, and North Dakota. And um, so anyway, he walked outside kind of slowly and I said, check that out, man. You see it? And he just kind of looked up and he just kind of didn't really have a, uh, didn't have an effect on him like it had me. I said, watch this. Stay right here. I ran in real fast and I flapped the, flapped the lights at it again. And as I was standing there, I came back out and it was still illuminated. And all of a sudden it flipped off and it flipped on. And he goes, hmm, he goes, whatever. He really didn't make a comment to the to the point of what, you know, was it a bomber? Was it helicopters? Because we did have helicopters also that relieved us sometimes when they couldn't bring us out on buses that they normally did. 
And he would even make a comment. He was like, whatever. He said that to me three times that night. Uh, so we watched it for a few minutes and I went back in and flipped the lights at it again and it went off. Now, any of this time that it did this, it didn't move north, south or come closer or further away. It stayed at relatively in the same location in the sky. This time when it went off, nothing happened. It stayed off. I went back inside. I flipped the lights again. He went back inside and I walked back outside again. So we got this crisscross going because he just lost interest real quick. And as I came back outside, it came on again, but it was further north. It was still the same distance away, but it, as, if, as if it had gone north and then moved a little more westward, kind of like at an angle. Kept the same distance, same luminosity. It came on and it stayed on for just a minute. And then it went off. And that time was probably 9.30, 9.45, maybe somewhere in there. I know 15 minutes is a lot of time when we're talking about this. But anyway, it went off and I said to myself, well, I guess the show's over. And that's exactly what I said to myself. So I went back inside. I didn't give any more thought about it and talked to uh, Bill Holloman again. And, and I said, you should have seen that thing. You know, I told him what went on with it and went back in the day room and I found something to do. And I don't know, read a book or, or play some backgammon or something that we had out there. Watch a little TV and the TVs go off at midnight. And, uh, so anyway, we uh, we were sitting in the day room and uh, as a little after 12, I'd say about 12, 15, 12, 20, all of a sudden the alert phone went off in the flight security controller's office where, where Bill Holloman's located. And that's a direct communication line uh, to from the officers down in the capsule, 60 feet below ground or somewhere deeper uh, to him. And what they do is they're dispatching us or informing him of an alarm. And then we in turn are dispatched to the affected launch facility. If there's more than one, sometimes we have to wake up the backup alert force. I mean, if they think there's something serious going on, but that didn't happen that night. But it was a serious uh, alarm. It was called a SIT-4. And a SIT-4 is a little different alarm than a normal bird flying through the antenna array or something like that. Because we had sandpipers and some other kind of birds that just played havoc on our sites. Hmm. And, um, so anyway, we're, we were uh, briefed. Uh, he took the uh, safety briefing from the capsule crew, Michael Johnson did. And of course we were given a travel time, I think it was 15 minutes. It was honestly, it was the closest site, launch facility site to our launch control facility. Now each site, each launch control facility has uh, charter over 10 missiles, each one. So being it was the closest, it was, it was very, it was very close and just outside of a little town called Newell. And, uh, as the crow flies, it's probably only about nine, about nine miles from us, I guess. But, um, we got our, our code tables and our weapons and everything and had our ditty bags is what you can live out of. It's got everything that, you know, you carry to the missile fields in your bag and, uh, got in our F-154 pickup truck, which we had plugged in outside. And I say plugged in because back then the weather was so bad, so cold, you had to keep the transmission cool and you had to, or, or warm and you had to, had to keep your uh, coolant uh, warm as well. So you had these plug-ins that had heaters in them to keep all those things warm. And uh, so we were dispatched and we exited the site. Uh, normally we'd be on five minute security checks. And as we left, we went out the site went down dirt road. These are all clay roads. They're built up high on the prairie. So water runs off and they're very well maintained by the state. 
I'm pretty sure you can go from one end of the state, east or west, all the way to the next state, whether it be South Dakota to, to uh, Montana or anywhere you want to go on a clay road. Hmm. Uh, any, yeah. So anyway, we went uh, down and up uh, to uh, Highway 79. And on our way down this last clay road, but prior to 79, I'm in the passenger seat. And um, as we approach Highway 79, maybe we're like half a mile from it, the road kind of dipped down and back up because as, as the hard road, Highway 79 was is higher elevated for wintertime driving, of course. And I looked off to my uh, four o'clock position, which would have been which would have been my south, and I see this really strange glow going on. You know, this is 12:45 p.m. A uh, really strange orange yellowish glow just glowing up, glowing from the ground up. I've never seen that before ever. It was just so strange looking. And I said, Mike, you, I said, Michael, you see that glow? And he said, Whatever. And as we approached and got up on the 79, we turned right, heading toward the town of Newell. And um, as we did, that four o'clock now became about my one or one thirty position. Then you could really see it because we were up on a plateau going down toward Newell. And I said, that's that object over there on November 5. And here again, he said, whatever. He didn't want to he didn't really want to acknowledge that. And he he didn't want to talk about it. And I said, I'm telling you, I mean, I didn't know to be excited, frightened or what. I really honestly thinking back about it because these thoughts put me back in that seat right now at an F-154 pickup truck, just like I'm there. And it's never gone away or never subsided in any way in intensity. So as we as as we go down toward Newell, that that ominous pulsation kind of decreased because we were kind of going down to more level area as to where the site was and in newell south dakota at that time the population was 230 people there was one stop sign and there was one stoplight and we came to the came to the first stop sign which is orman o-r-m-a-n road you can look it up on google earth and right there at that road which is still there today still clay that same same stop sign or thereabout is still there took a right on the orman road and it's it was concrete or it was pavement out for about a mile and a half and then the road jutted to the left uh, or dog leg i call it and when we made that dog leg and it dropped back off to clay and november 5 was beyond us maybe by a quarter of a mile further there sat this object in the air 10 feet above that missile site on that blast door the size of a super Walmart building. Now that's the only, I could say, okay, three aircraft carriers. Could I say two? No, because that'd be too small. This mm -hmm. thing was the biggest thing I've ever seen in my life in the, in the air. I've never seen anything like that. Never have I a sense. So as we approached it, the, it, it, its luminosity was like that of the sun and whatever that energy was, it stayed very close to the sphere itself. It wasn't like shooting off like sparks or flames or anything like that in a fire. It was like a controlled release of energy that was just electrifying. The atmosphere was just uh, almost electric. And we pulled up to the access road. And you can see in that one in that one photo there. And we put our vehicle at a 45 degree angle. That was our big tactical move. That's all we had. And two M16s between us with 120 rounds each in them. 
I'm in full parka, as is he, bunny boots, flat pants, everything, and my beret on my head. As soon as we arrived, I, I didn't even, I don't even remember speaking. I, I was just like, what, what is this? What could this be? He, he didn't speak. He was just, he was just bathed in this light that is indescribable of an intensity that I, I, a welder's lights bright, but this was a, this was different. This was just indescribable. And, um, all of a sudden that same thought, seeing it and just pulling up on it, I, uh, I couldn't breathe. And I've never, I was a really good athlete and, um, really in shape. And I, and I, I, it just as if the atmosphere in that vehicle was just pulled away, was just literally vacuumed out. I felt like I was in something that was just encased in, in, in a different atmosphere. Mario, I'm going to make you hesitate yeah. just for a second sure. because uh, I want to ask you this question. Yeah. Um, what about sounds? A lot of people talk about sounds almost like they're in a vacuum, and I'm wondering if this, if you can remember anything about that. No, I don't remember any sounds, nor did the craft make any kind of a sound whatsoever. You know, it, what we just talked about, what we what we. In the blink of an eye, you're sitting in a seat of a vehicle, you pull up on something like this and all of a sudden you have no atmosphere and you are gasping for air that's not there. Hmm. The only thing that I knew to do and I, where I get, where I got this idea, I don't know. I had to ask for help and all I knew to do, I looked at Michael Johnson and he was in the same situation I was in and this pressure felt as if it was pulling me at my chest and pulling me up into the back. This is a single cab F-154 pickup truck. I felt as if I was being pulled in my seat. I mean, we only had lap belts and we didn't have shoulder belts at that time. To the best of my knowledge, I know we didn't. No, we didn't because I had to pull him out of the seat belt later. But I, 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 I grab my aluminum light. I've had so many people say, oh, Maglites didn't make Maglites till 79. Well, they were making them. They just weren't calling Maglite. Or it was an aluminum light. Black aluminum light, okay, with a rubber. Oh, yeah, you're you're going to get everyone pick apart everything, you yeah, know. Okay, I don't, I don't. You take apart anything yeah. you want to take. I got yeah. nothing to hide, nothing to gain. Yeah. Um, so, I roll the window down, too afraid to get out of that vehicle. Grown man, I was 23 years old. Nobody could outrun me. <laughs> Nobody could outshoot me. I mean, really, I, I just I prided myself on being a really good soldier. And. Um, I roll that window down at F-154 pickup truck and I pull myself up on that old West and that Western stainless steel mirror and sat on the windowsill of that truck, like a scared child. And I had a glove, I had my mitten on my left hand and I did not have it in my right hand. I had my flashlight in my right hand. I held onto the blue bubble up top and I reached across the top of the vehicle and I flashed my black aluminum flashlight at this object. What could that possibly do? In no particular sequence, no SOS. I didn't even know SOS at that. Well, I did, but I, I couldn't remember nothing at that time or think about anything. But please stop what you're doing. That's all I knew to say. That's all I was saying in my mind. Please stop what you're doing because it's it's hurting us. It's it's killing us. You know, we can't breathe. We can't do nothing. What? 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 
And I slid back down on that seat and I rolled that window up and I put my M16 between my legs. And I just held an A-frame on that side. I just held the latest on where my flashlight went. I noticed something at the front of the vehicle in, in front of the windshield. Now, we were at a 45-degree angle next to the cattle gate, and then the object would be over to my left, and I would be facing away from it, not away back way, but at a 45 away from it. I was I have to turn my head to the left to look up at it, and every time I turn my head to the left, there's Michael Johnson, and he's just his eyes were just huge, and he was just frozen being bathed in this blue-white light. But there was an object that was probably four or five times the size of a beach ball that was in front of our windshield, maybe just past the hood toward the end of the, toward the front of the vehicle. And this thing moved like, like lightning. It just shot left, right, right, left, up, down, everywhere, just everywhere. And of course the word drone was never used then. Who knew of a drone in 77? I didn't, I never even heard of it before, but it reminded me of a, of a beach ball just because of the spherical nature of it. And it had these vents on it that were, uh, if you drew a circle and then just drew these lines straight down, but in a curvature, you would have it. It's probably about four to six feet in diameter. And I saw it for maybe a couple of seconds and then it was gone. And I felt as if I was blacking out. And as I started to, I shouldn't say as I started, you know, all those sequences, mind you, this is just a couple of minutes, if even that, since we rolled up to this facility. Mm-hmm. So all this is taking place and just faster than you can think about it. It's just coming at you and it continues and it won't stop. And there's no break in any of it. It just keeps coming. And all you have is flashes of your eyes looking left, right, up and down. But I started to go into something like a tunnel vision where I just... I just started blacking out, but I, I was trying to trying to keep conscious of what was happening. And I, I was so afraid of what was in my mind because the only thing I had protecting me, I knew I couldn't do nothing with this weapon that I'm holding on to. And I turned my head to the right and I see these four silhouettes, maybe 15 feet from, from the right side of this vehicle coming toward me. And there were three small and one tall being. The tall being was who I really focused on because he had a different face. And I've got some original drawings and that was done with the help of somebody else at a later time. And I I didn't really, some of it I didn't agree with, but there's some other drawings that you have there. Um, yeah, that's what the, that's what the little guys look like. And I couldn't get any more on the page. There should be another one there and then a tall one behind him. I'm not an artist. I am no way an artist. And uh, I need a little Chris Lato said he would give me a hand with this, some graphic person that he's got that he could he could help me out. And he did a couple. So uh, um, I'm get back with him on that because I should have a better package than this for people, I feel. But it is difficult. You know, you, you just. So I see these, I see these silhouettes and, and I, and I just look down and I'm so afraid because I've just got this piece of glass b- between me and, th- and them. And that there, uh, that is not a figment of an imagination. That is some real, that's some real beings there. 
and how they got on that side of that vehicle, um, uh, I just don't even have a, I don't even have an answer for that. But I blacked out and everything just went to black. And uh, I was sitting in the seat and all of a sudden I opened my eyes in just a second, just a second had passed and opened my eyes and everything was completely dark, just completely, just, just completely black and quiet. It was just so strange because there seemed there was so much chaos just seconds ago. And that's the, that's the best way I know to describe it. it it's chaos is mm. not being able to explain anything or anything, make any sense to myself let alone my partner who hadn't said anything as, as of yet other hanging on to that steering wheel. So I opened my eyes and I go, I go, where's November five. And I turned and I looked at him and I said, Michael, Michael. And he is, he is uh, part of this. He is just glued to this light blue plastic F-150 Ford steering wheel looking straight ahead. His eyes were, you know, were big and he was breathing but he was like super tensed up and he, he could not, he wouldn't speak to me. I've never seen a human being that way scared that bad. I guess that's the only word is catatonic state or something has been said to me. So I'm relaying that how he was. And I opened the door and I go, I kept saying, where's November five. And I stepped out and I had on bunny boots, which are used in super extreme cold weather areas. Mm. And, uh, I stepped out in mud and I go, what the hell? The ground's frozen everywhere mm-hmm. else. I said, what, how did I, where is this mud? Where are we? Where is November five? Should be right there to my left. Should be where it always threw it, where, where it was when we pulled up here. And then as my eyes focused, I mean, this is just seconds after stepping out of this truck to my right, just five or six feet away from me was a white wall, not a wall that goes up 90 degrees, but at a slant. And it went away, went up as far as I could see. I couldn't really see the top of it because it was extremely dark. And as far as I look in either direction, that same slant or that wall was there. And I said, Michael, I said, where are we? I said, man, you got to talk to me. You got to do something. You know, you got to help me here. So I reached over and I was shoving him in the arm. I poked his face. I mean, I literally poked him. I poked him and shoved him and it was just, there was no response in any way. He was breathing. He was conscious. Well, to, for as, as a human can be without being there, I guess, I don't know, without being mentally present. Um, I was questioning, you know, what, what, what could this be? Where did this thing go? What happened to November five? And all of a sudden the radio said wing security WSC to November one, that was us. And that wing security control was at Ellsworth. They are the controlling security agency for, for all of the missile sites were from the 66th to the 68th. And they keep, um, they monitor everything that's going on in, in the missile field period. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Everybody kind of reports to them. They kind of have the, the upper echelon uh, chain of command that they report to. And and I looked as soon as that radio said, it just kind of surprised me. It just kind of cracked out, you know, WSC to November 1 like that. And I, I said, are you going to get that? Thinking somehow he magically came out of this. And I kept expecting that at any second that he would be conscious. 
which he, but he wasn't. And I reached down and this, this is a question that my mind was the radio was the, was the vehicle running or would this radio work without the vehicle running? I can't remember mm. which, mm. because if, if it was running, the lights would have been on, I suspect, or unless they would have been turned off, which I didn't turn them off. I wouldn't operate in the vehicle. I sure didn't drive there. And I don't know if he did or didn't I later found out that he didn't, but I answered the radio and, uh, I said, November one, I said, senior airman woods at the time. I said, I said, uh, I said, uh, I don't know where we are. He asked where we were when the immediate contact he says, where are you? I said, I said, I don't know where we are. He said, were you hurt? And I said, no, sir. I said, but my partner, I said, he, he won't speak. I said, I don't know what's wrong with him. I've never seen anybody do this. And I tried to explain that to him, but he said, I need to keep you on one minute security checks. We're trying to triangulate your position. I said, yes, sir. So I did exactly what he said. And I just kept, and I, and he kept talking to me and I talked to him, you know, just the whole thing. I don't know, you know, how did you leave November five? Just all that radio banner back and forth. I just, I kept trying to wake Michael Johnson up or get him out of what he was doing. And his hands were just, uh, just gripped onto that steering wheel. Like, like I've never seen anything like that before. How mm -hmm. human grip something and how long can you hold that? You know, mm. how, how, long, how can you do that? Mm. And it took, it, well, I guess it was about 20 minutes before we had a team. It was a Sergeant Garza that arrived first and there were three teams looking for. So that was six security policemen. I guess two were primary uh, armed response teams and one was a backup alert team. And I don't know where from, from what sites, but during their travel there, as I'm sitting here wrestling with this and Michael Johnson and what's going on and where, where, where I am, where we are, all of a sudden it, I, I thought, what's going on the light, the atmosphere started getting lighter. And I just looked, I didn't know what time it was. I looked at my watch and it was after 6 AM. So five hours had passed because we literally arrived November uh, five missile site at about five minutes to one, to the best of my knowledge and recollection. And I don't know the exact time because that would be in the security police blotter. Now, wing security control would have it because they were all listening. I mean, that's what they do. That's their jobs. And that's what we were reported to do. So we never struck the site as to the investigation as to what caused the alarm. We never did the things that we were supposed to do at all. And when Sergeant Garza arrived at me or at our location, he pulled up within about 20 yards and got out and started walking toward me while I left my vehicle and Michael Johnson. And I started, and it's cold, but I don't even remember being cold or anything during that period of time. I don't remember turning the truck on. I don't remember any of that at that particular, at that time, you know, turning the heater on or anything. Everything was just so different. Everything was different. And as I approached him, I said, uh, I said, Hey, Sergeant Garza, I said, what's going on? He goes, Mario, I can't talk to you about it. He goes, we've been sent to find you and to get you back to November control. I said, okay. I said, can you give me a hand with Michael Johnson? Because something's wrong with him. So he didn't really say anything. And he walked back, came over to me and we unbuckled Michael Johnson. And I said, see what I mean? I said, he's not speaking. He's not moving. I said, his eyes are open. He's breathing. He's got a pulse. 
but he's just in a state that I've never seen a, a person in at all. So I unbuckled him and slid him over to the passenger seat and uh, rebuckled him. I got in the driver's seat, started the vehicle up, and mind you, had we driven into this location, the road or where we were, which I didn't, I didn't even know where we were at the time, the road was only about six foot wide, and then to the driver's side of that F-154, there was a there was a an area that went downhill into another pond or some kind of a another great big holding area. Well, come to find out, we were on the back side of the Newell Lake Reservoir Dam, and we only had two-wheel drive vehicles. They weren't four-wheel drive vehicles at all, and there was no way coming in there through three and four foot of snow that we came in there and turned around facing the other only direction that we could get out of there in is how I woke up to. So that's been a mystery all in itself. Um, mm -hmm. The area again, where we were was muddy and all the way down at the other end, I found out when I was out there um, with that discovery plus guy, uh, guys that um, at the far end was the sluice gate. I think that's what you call it where they, when the dam overruns, they open, they open the water flow and control it down into that lower holding area. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's at the far end of that dam. So where we were located was at the very center, which would have been this area looking at it like uh, from an aerial view at the very center of the backside of this dam, the wall would have been, or the back of the dam would have been higher, um, which, which is relevant. For some reason, we were at the very center of the backside of this thing. And I honestly had had never been there before or even knew of it. So that was a strange thing and ordeal to find out. And that was that was discovered when we went out there to do that filming for Discovery Plus. But got back to the followed them to the followed them to um, November Control. Had a little bit of problem getting out of where we were. And luckily we had, you know, we had all the other guys, the other guys there to help us if needed. But I got out. Got the November control, and of course we were received with the, by the flight chief, assistant flight chief, facility manager, the two off-duty officers now that were that were off-duty were waiting on us. And as they pulled up, they just ascended upon the vehicle, and um, I, I grabbed my weapon and stuff and my ditty bag, and they said, "Just come on in. We'll we'll help you with all that. Don't worry about it." And I said, "I need help with Michael Johnson because I don't know what's wrong with him." So, so the facility manager and one of the officers got a hold of him. And they took him inside and they took him to the back, like to the to the flight security or to the uh, facility manager's uh, room or area. And me, they took into the day room, which is the common area. And everybody, the, the on duty, our team was our response team was there. Flight security controller was there. Uh, uh, Bill Holloman, all everybody was there. They were asking me questions from everywhere. My head was just pounding. And uh, I answered every question that I could answer. And Master Sergeant Gray was there. That's our Tech Sergeant Hawkins, the Assistant Flight Chief. And uh, I just did everything to the best of my ability for about the next 45 minutes to an hour answering. And I've been up, you know, since the day before and no sleep. And whatever happened, happened. So, I, you know, I was just, I, I was just beside myself in a way. I mean, I was coherent and I was able to answer and try to keep my composure but after about an hour and 20 minutes of it, I said, "Can I said, I need to go to the restroom. You know, and I drank water. I was really, really thirsty. And uh, they said, yeah, go ahead. So I went into the restroom, which is still there today. 
And uh, so I went back to that site and I couldn't believe, couldn't believe it. And I went into stall number two and I just sat on the, I just sat on the toilet, closed the door, just separate myself for a moment, just moment peace, you know, and just trying to think what, what happened and what I remember and what I felt. And the next thing I know, the, the uh, atmosphere changed around me, but the, uh, not the lighting, but the way I was seeing things turned into like a really, really light pea green or something, some color like that. And all of a sudden I thought I was, I thought I was leaving my body. Uh, consciously, I thought I was, I was leaving, but I wasn't just going out. I, I felt as if I was going down through my body and I was going to go out of my feet. I don't know where that comes from or what, I don't even know how to process that thought, but that's what I felt as if there was a clear channel within me to leave my physical body through my feet. And I honestly felt as if I was somewhere down around right here. And I, 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 my eyes were closed and I opened my eyes just for a second. And I saw four furry feet come walking by the bottom of the uh, restroom door. And it was a air force security police drug dog. And it was a handler and it was a handler behind him. And he had Cochrane boots on. I remember that. And I, and I said, Hey, I said, how you doing? He said, you okay in there, Mario? I said, yep. I didn't know the guy, but evidently he knew me. Uh, probably just by what they had told him. I never met him before. Seen him, seen him before, but never met him. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, I said, I, I, I don't know. I said, um, my ditty bag or my hawk bag, we called him. I said, is out there in the day room. So I already checked that. I was just coming in to check on you. And I said, I appreciate that. I never relayed what, what I was, what was going on with me. And, and he walked back out with his dog and I just went to the sink and I just, just flashed myself and just wet my face and everything just to take me out of where I'd just been or where I thought I was going. I don't know how to, how else to describe that. So I, I cleaned up and dried myself off and walked back out to the day room and then uh, Master Sergeant Gray said, um, well, we've been requested to go back to Ellsworth. We need to, you know, got to go to the commander's office. And I said, yes, sir. Uh, so my bag had already been put in his vehicle and um, I, asked, I kept asking about Michael Johnson, but um, they told me that uh, don't worry about him. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. He's, he's going back to base too. I said, oh, you know, and he's going with somebody else. He went with the assistant flight chief. So it was about an hour back, hour and maybe 15 minutes back to Ellsworth. We went into the back gate at Box Elder and uh, went straight to the SATAF building, the 44th Missile Security uh, Building, which is our office complexes. That was a, um, a newly conditioned uh, B-52 hangar that was converted into a area for our guard mount and our offices and our official areas and wing security control was there. And, all the upper echelon were located there and the assistant flight chief uh, or assistant base commander was there. I went and reported directly in, knocked on the door, did the formal reporting in, just like you see anywhere, but, you know, you're reporting to a commanding officer. And in that room was uh, 
Colonel Spraker and the assistant uh, base commander who I didn't know. I never met him before. And uh, there was a tall guy in a suit and there were uh, two OSI guys there. One was really young and um, come to find out, well, well, I'll go on that later. But uh, anyway, it was Captain Jack Reed. He was in charge of this investigation. So I stood at attention. He told me I, I could be at ease. I never got to sit down during that time, that debriefing. And then he had me, you know, simply go over everything which I've just told you. The only thing that I omitted in this, because, you know, you're a member of the personal reliability program, PRP, and in the nuclear field, if, you know, if you have some kind of an incident that's uh, questionable per se, then they'll remove you directly from that career field and put you somewhere else that you probably don't want to be or send you somewhere anyway that you don't want to be. I'm sure. So I, did, I never relayed what I saw out the right side of that window. It just stayed in me, you know, it just burned in me and just stayed that way. And I was afraid. I mean, I was a newlywed at the time and, and I, I just thought I was going to lose everything because I never did what I was supposed to do as far as a security measure on that site and finding out the reason why it was an alarm. Yeah. Speaking of that, if you don't mind, if I interject here. Mm -hmm. So when you're missing all this time, did they send someone else out to November five, another team to see what was oh. going on? Well, they had to have because I never struck it. And it's, you know, by the UCMJ, they had to find out the cause of the reason why that missile site was an alarm. Hmm. Hmm. But I wasn't told that. I was just made to feel honestly as if um, I had done something extremely wrong, like that. I, you know, because we didn't do it, and and I couldn't speak for Michael Johnson. And as, even though I kept asking about him, they told him even to the commander. They said, "Don't worry about him. He'll be just fine. We'll talk to we're, we'll be talking to him too." So hmm. that's where they left that, and that went on for all those questions that I just answered. I went over all that again that I answered at November Control, all the same questions, and um, nobody asked me any questions or said anything to me other than Colonel Spraker. Uh, OSI didn't, and uh, one of the agents there was a young guy by the name of Rick Doty and uh, who I have been in contact with uh, as of about four months ago now. He uh, he acknowledged that and emailed me and uh, I hope someday that maybe we could be on something together or we could just talk together and just see. Um, I sent him my phone number and every, everything I've got, but he just sends emails, you know, so that's OK, too. That's at least he, he sent me an email. So I've got that. So after about, uh, I guess, one and a half, two hours, uh, Colonel Spraker said, well, he said, we're going to send you over to medical. He said to the hospital, he says, we need a flight surgeon to have a look at you. I said, yes, sir. So I thought, you know, what am I going to walk over there or something? Oh, no, they escorted me over there in the commander's vehicle. Uh, the driver took me over. And when I got there, uh, both the OSI people were there uh and the the tall guy and like i said i never knew who that guy was uh in a suit i don't know if he was fbi or what he was or a government official of some type he had a hat <laughs> also mm -hmm. uh like a it wasn't a dark suit it was it was a i don't know maybe a grayish grayish suit i, I guess mm -hmm. so the flight surgeon when they were ready for me when i got there and they escorted me back into this office area 
examination area and I stripped down into my in my boxers and stuff and they checked my knees, my elbows, my hands, ears, eyes, throat, everything, you know, and, and uh, range of movement and all that stuff and asked me how I felt and just some real strange questions that that they were asking me and <clears throat> do you recall any of them? Well, yeah, you know, they said, I heard you had quite an incident. And I, and I just said, I just shook my head. I said, yes, sir. It was, it was kind of strange. And he asked if I wanted to talk to him about it. And I, and I said, I told him, I didn't know if I should. Um, I just told him it was really strange. It was very strange. And I don't know, you know, what would become of it. I didn't want to say too much because literally I was on guard from as soon as I walked in that commander's office and the line of questioning there, I was just, you know, real guarded. Um, he asked me how I felt, asked me if I drank or if I smoked or I did drugs or the normal questions or anything like that, you know, and hmm. okay, I answered no on all of it. And there was two, two doctors, two flight surgeons and a nurse. Now these areas, this area had like a, I don't know if you, you know, maybe long ago, you might remember when you went into clinics or something like that, they had like these gray partition walls. And then the top half, three foot of it was like a smoky glass kind of look, kind of, I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> it was, that's the way the, that's the way the office was. And hmm. uh, this room was, and they, they had, those three people were standing outside one of those areas and they were just, they were listening. They did, I guess they were talking amongst themselves. I don't know. I couldn't hear anything. Hmm. So they kept examining me, looking at me real good. And then they went, they just stepped, stepped back five or six feet and they started talking. And, uh, I don't know who they were. I don't know their names. They didn't have on name tags or anything like that. Just having their white coats and their stethoscopes and that, and that one had a stethoscope on the other one didn't. And, uh, the one that didn't have the stethoscope on, he came back up, he walked back up to me and he goes, uh, he reaches down and he pulls on, he pops on those vinyl gloves. And I went, I just thought to myself, Oh, great. You know, that's usually a bad sign when they snap those gloves too. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And then I never get that. And I thought, Oh damn, you know, but then you need like, you can't say no. So, you know, you just got to go with it. But he goes, um, he grabbed me, kind of put his hands on me like this and he started feeling around my cheek areas. And then he said, he goes, I need to look at, I need to check your gum area. And I went, what? And he just lift my head back and he opened my mouth and he just went all through my gums. I mean, for a long time, all mm -hmm. just squeezed all down through my gums, pressed really hard, you know, in different areas. And uh, just really all through my mouth with that index finger. It just, it was just really wow. kind of, it was really strange. Yeah. And then he said, uh, senior, would you know, you have a couple of burns on your body? He says, we, we'd like to take some skin samples. And I went, I said, what? He goes, yeah, you've got a, you've got a burn right here on the back of your hand on your right hand. And I just looked because I didn't have a glove on that hand. And I went, wow, I don't even think nothing about it. And then he said, you got a burn above your right eye and it runs in this direction right here. That's where my beret was. And I said, I, never, I don't, I didn't realize that I didn't, I didn't feel that way. I didn't feel burned. So sure enough, he clipped off a piece up here, just pinched off a little piece with a small tool, put it into a, um, a little vial and, uh, with the tool and all just dropped it into this vial. 
I guess it was made for what it did, just what it did, and then put a cork on it. And he did took two off the back of my hand because it was, I guess it was, uh, it had a wider area. I guess my parade limited some of that area, and then this on the, my back of my hand, it was a wider area because I, I put that light out there at it, but the object. So I just put some small little band-aids on me and it looked really strange, I must say. And uh, then after some discussion and about 10 minutes later, they told me that I could get dressed. They never took my blood, never had me do a, a urinalysis or anything like that. Any type of radiation test? Uh, no, that's all they did, take the skin samples. They didn't do yeah. anything. They, I, I don't know if they were making light of it or what they were doing. Hmm. But it wasn't until the next day that I really felt that I, yeah, I had a sunburn. You know, just what I felt was a sunburn. Hmm. Um, so then once I was dressed and then I was escorted back, OSI people had already, they'd already left and gone back to the commander's office. They were waiting on me when I got there. And uh, so as I came in, I reported back in Colonel Spraker, Ralph E. Spraker was his name. And I stood there and he goes, uh, Senior Woods, he goes, I need you to, I need you to write a report for me. And I said, yes, sir. And he, he gave me a pen, had it right, had it right there in front of him on his desk. He said, I need you to take these forms. I'm going to put you right here in this room. And it was right next to his office. And uh, the skill craft pen. And uh, I went in there and sat down by myself. They closed the door. And I wrote that. It took me probably an hour and 20 minutes to write it, maybe a little bit longer. Hmm. I print very well and I print real small and I got every detail in. I did not put the detail in concerning what I saw at the right side of my window. And, uh, yeah, I did not. I knew better than that. I knew what would happen. So when I came back out and I handed it to him, did the whole reporting back to him, I, you know, you just don't walk up to a commander's desk and hand him something. You got to stand at attention and do it again with your paperwork. And he looks at it and says, thank you very much. Didn't get a copy of it. Didn't get any explanation, didn't get anything. The only thing I did get was a couple of extra days off because, you know, this was all, we'd only been out one day. We should have been out three days. And so they waited till the next cycle to send us back, to send me back to the field. And I never went back to November control. They sent me to Kilo control, which was the alternate command post. So I was always there with a supervisor and assistant supervisor and another team leader. I was never a team leader again. Um, until I, until I received orders to leave. But so after I finished the reports and I reported back and gave it to him, then that Captain Jack Reed of OSI, who's now deceased. And I found that out through Richard Doty and his email that he sent me. Um, he handed the commander his form and it was a non-disclosure form or act or whatever you want to call it. And on it was Colonel Spraker's name. And I think these OSI guys' names, I'm really not sure of the, but I know my name was going to go at the bottom of this thing. So once I finished what I was doing and I was brief, you know, I was told that I would never speak of this with anyone, discuss mm -hmm. it in any way with anyone other than the people in this room only. And that could be subject to, you know, severe disciplinary action if I did anything, uh, to, to say what I've seen to any media source or anything like that, or discuss it in any way with anybody other than the people in this room. So I signed it. And then about after they read, read everything and read the report um, and asked me a few more questions concerning what I had written. 
and they, you know, just, they asked me everything they could possibly ask me. Then only, and then was I allowed to, uh, call home and, and, uh, have my wife come get me. And she thought it was really strange that all of a sudden I'm, you know, I should have been gone for three days and, uh, in the morning of the fourth, but I was back on the second day and I had to, you know, explain that I said, I, something happened to me. I fell or something that hurt my head. And, that's why the band-aids up there and two on the back of my hand and you know anything i could say you know just that's what i did so wow well that's that's a really good a really good uh version for those who haven't heard that that story um a, a couple of things what made you decide and when did you decide that you was going to talk about it after signing that non-disclosure uh, well, as you know, when I left the Air Force in 83, I had a job offer with United States, U.S. Department of Energy as a security inspector. And uh, that that uh, involved a Q clearance. So I went directly from a secret intact clearance uh, into a Q clearance review and granted a Q clearance to work as a contractor at the U.S. Department of Energy as a security inspector. And I did that all the way up until um, 97. And all that time, I never told anybody about it or anything like that. And um, it's only one person I ever discussed it with. Because the way I understood that Non-Disclosure Act was any, as long as I had any type of a security clearance or I was in any type of government job, uh, and you sure don't want to talk about this at USDOE, especially if you're a contractor, like to Martin Marietta, which I was, Lockheed Martin, General Electric, Neutron Devices, been to Los Alamos, been to Sandia. Mm. Um, you start talking about little green men or whatever you want to call them out the side of a window that you witnessed, and I guarantee you, you won't have a you won't have a Q clearance for two extra minutes. They'll snatch you right out of there, and you know, yeah. and you'll pretty much lose your job. And uh, the only person that I ever spoke with is a really good friend of mine um, who's still a friend of mine today. And uh, we stay in contact. And <laughs> I think I, I talked to him about it in 86. I just had to, uh, 86 or 87, I just had to speak to somebody about it. And he was somebody yeah. I vehemently trust. Mm -hmm. And uh, I told him about it. And we discuss it today, to this day still. He's like, you know, he, mm -hmm. He's listening to some of these podcasts and, and stuff, and he says, man, because that is amazing, you know, that you told me that all those years ago. Yeah. And uh, so then the only reason I didn't was because of a clearance. Nice. And every time, you know, a cute clearance is hard to obtain. I don't know. In this, today's political world, and you see these people that are doing what they're doing and have cute clearances as it comes down to, I don't understand how the heck they get them. I don't see how they keep them. I really don't because I mean, it, there's every aspect of your existence is involved in a Q clearance. They go back about 17 years of your life and it's for the DOE, it's you as the office of personnel management and they don't play, man. They go all the way back to your elementary school teachers. If they're still alive, mm. anybody next door neighbors, any, anyone. And, uh, yeah. While I was with while I was with DOE, I went through um, every five years they 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 do a, another clearance on you. They redo it, but mm -hmm. you can also have randoms. 
and I was selected for randoms twice. And my first Q clearance took eight months to obtain. And I directly relate that to not only how many addresses I, uh, where I lived or how I lived, um, uh, within the air force and move, you know, overseas and that type of thing and back. Um, but, uh, It always seemed as if they were teetering on the question because it would never be just a one-on-one -on -one interview. They would call you into an area office, whether it be Pinellas area office or Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is where I was at the Y-12 plant and K-25 uh, facility. And um, you would be in front of a board of between three and five people. And it wasn't a five minute interview. It was you sit that you sit on a hot seat in front of all these people and then they just stroke questions at you and you better tell them everything they want to know. But I, they never, ever mentioned that directly. I think they had evidence of it or reports of it, of what I wrote perhaps, or what was written by somebody within the air force. Mm -hmm. And the questions were always around the subject matter, but they never asked that directly. And I never volunteered it. Yeah. So yeah. In 90, 97, when I left DOE, that's when I first reached out to Linda Moulton Howe. Oh, wow. the only reason I did is because uh, when I was out there in that area of Belfouche, uh, South Dakota and Sturgis area, there was always discussion of cattle mutilations. And I've seen two of those. And I was with a friend of mine named Mark Wade on a patrol at Kilo 10. I remember the site where there was a uh, cattle uh, fenced in area on the corner of this Clay Road. And as we went by, there were law enforcement officials there and a rancher and three or four other people there. And they were looking over two, two cattle, two steers that were mm -hmm. mutilated. And we got out and walked up there and identified ourselves. And uh, Mark didn't want to do it, but I just had to. I, I, I don't know what drew me to it, but I had to. And I didn't really say that much, but uh, we had we had been on a missile site the night before babysitting the missile site, sitting on it because it had been snowed in or something. I don't know, waiting for a camper alert team to arrive. And uh, so that wasn't that far from us that that where it took where it took place. And mm -hmm. I just asked around and I, and I just watched, you know, what the local sheriff was saying, you know, how, who can make these incisions like this and who can do this? And I thought immediately from what I'd seen about Linda Moulton Howe, this, you know, she was a reporter, I think, in Denver at the time. On a, yeah. on a on a news on a news team or something like that and uh and I, doing work on that back then yes yeah and i i just kept it in my memory and so when computers were you know first started being sold in the 90s if you remember yeah. i had a gateway uh pentium 90 system i think i paid like four grand for that thing i know it's crazy yeah. <laughs> had like uh 16 gigabytes of memory and that was oh my god wow <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, uh, so just before I, we want to, I want to move on to yeah. the AARO. Uh, but yeah. before that, um, here's a question here on getting back to the beings. Um, how was the uh, tall beings face different from the others? Uh, it seemed to be longer and narrower at the chin area. Um, and its eyes seemed to be, um, they didn't protrude. They were, I, the best description I have is like uh, like an owl's eyes that are, are kind of sunk in 
into the skull area, kind of sunk back and at that at that strange angle and had a shadow about them. Uh, I didn't send you. Did I not send you a picture of of of, of that? Because it had something on his chest also. The little guys. Oh, well, possibly. You know, these these are pictures from when we did the show yeah. uh, prior. So uh, but I unfortunately and about, and about five and a half to six foot tall i just want that i just want to answer that question no, that's not it uh it's hard for me to see these pictures in this their thumbnails are so tiny i oh. can't even see what they are i don't uh no that's, that's on my table yeah, yeah that's that's the little guys there yeah um all right well i don't need to waste uh, much much time on that okay but, uh let's see there was uh, another question i just saw up here i thought was interesting Right here is, uh, was Errol aware of the story before they interviewed you? They must have because they sent you that letter, right? That email. That, that is correct. They were. And uh, it had been referenced by someone uh, that referred about 12 of us. And I'm not at liberty to say who that was, who that is. And uh, I think I was the third or fourth person to be interviewed and possibly the first with an abduction while on duty uh, incident. And they don't call them stories. They call it, they call it an incident because you were on, that's what, that's what I was told. They don't look you're, at it as a story. Which yeah. Is, you're, you're testifying under oath. Um, yeah. So let's, let's talk about, so you get this email. Did they, uh, what was the next step? Did they contact you and say, okay, let's make arrangements to get you out here at this time. And they, they must've paid for everything like your place to stay and your flight and, well, they would. Yeah, they would, but that wasn't required. They have a secure, uh, how should I say it, a communication system that's mm -hmm. authenticated that uh, literally does it um, uh, through your cell phone or through your laptop or through your computer. Yeah. So they send you an encrypted uh, address kind of thing that you contact them on, and then it goes directly into that office and then you're connected with the person that's conducting the interview oh so you didn't actually personally go to you're washington not to go. no i was oh, invited okay i got it i got yeah. it so but what was it like did they did they let you talk like you just did now or were they interrupting you and asking you questions no they um asked me to start at a and if they had any questions during c or d they would stop and ask me who was there, how many were there, description of the craft, uh, distance from November November 1 to November 5, from there to Newell Lake Reservoir. Uh, and did you tell them about the beings? I did, yeah. And did you tell them that you did not talk about the beings yes, when you were I briefed? Mm -hmm. And did they have any comments about that? Uh, no, did not. Yeah. And it was in full description, the best of my ability. <laughs> and did you ever, did, did you show them or did they ask for any of your drawings or images or anything like that? They said I could send all I wanted. I didn't send them anything because they didn't require anything. Mm. I could send them anything I wanted. But, and they said if they had questions, you know, or, or needed more, they would contact me. And was, uh, was Kirkpatrick um, involved in this? Uh, well, of course, he's in charge of the office, but uh, yeah. he wasn't directly involved with my particular interview. Yeah. 
Okay. So it went on for about, you said four hours and 19 minutes, something that's like that. That's correct. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Of which I'm supposed to receive an entire manuscript of everything that was stated, said, questions, everything, but I haven't received that yet. Did they treat you with respect? Uh, yes. Yeah. Really did. Mm -hmm. And there was no, um, as far as you could tell, I mean, could when you were involved in the interview itself, could you actually see a person or people on the other side, like uh, a Zoom? No, no, no. They, they could not see me. Oh, they could not. Mm -mm. They couldn't see you actually. Nope, could not. And you, so this was all audio. Every bit of it. Yes. How about that? Mm -hmm. Wow, wow, and uh, wow. I'm kind of puzzled by that. It seems like for a testimony. That you yeah, I thought, I thought the same thing. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, that that that's kind of strange. I'm wondering why they didn't want to see you in person, and uh, I'm also wondering um, if they will follow up with you in any type of way. I don't know, but others that are, how should I say this? That are. Uh, you know, well thought of in this whole UFO thing, uh, directly relate that to mine being one of the first possible abduction incidents mm. that they had to deal with. And I don't, they didn't know if they were, how they, how they respond to that. I'm going to, I'm going to put this up and you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's in such good taste or not, but uh, why it says stay away from Richard Doty. There's a reason why a lot of people have comments like that about Richard Doty. And I'm not sure if you're aware, there's a case you can look it up online called the Paul Benowitz case, where there was uh, where he was more or less a distant information yes. uh, situation. So uh, I should just say, use caution. That's what I would say if you were dealing with him. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to get any flack from the people out there by saying that, but um, I would, I would well, just use caution. I'll answer that real quick. I don't think in 1977, as he was a junior officer at OSI, I'm not sure if he was, uh, if he was an officer or he was enlisted at that particular time. Uh, I did learn later that I outranked him at the time, oh, but yeah. he was there at that debriefing that morning, whether that was his first shot at it. Uh, I don't really know. But I've read all those particular things about Mr. Doty. And uh, I, I don't even know what to say. I only know that he answered. Uh, I was on the uh, uh, Ryan Sprague show and Ryan Sprague got in touch with him, knowing that I was looking for him and had been for years, been asking him. I even had a phone number of him and I would call and call. I got no answer. I'd sent emails, never anything, texts, nothing. But Ryan Sprague evidently reached out to him and he in turn sent an email saying he, yes, he remembered, he remembered the incident and he was there. And he stated that his job while he was there, he was there to study SAC communications. Hmm. Now, you know, that involves, that's, that's, I, I, I uh, okay. That maybe everybody's got a job, but that is a, um, that's a real reach for me to understand how a junior uh, airman or 
senior airmen or what have you would, how do you study strategic air command communications? Hmm. I mean, how many different forms of communications are they using? I mean, you're talking about NORAD, you're, you know, you're talking about what radar you're talking about, what are you talking about? So, and he, he, his job at that time, he was sent to the medical facility to pick up our, our medical records from the flight surgeons and return it to Jack Reed captain who was in charge of the investigation. Did you, um, when you are being, uh, when you are talking to them, uh, in the very beginning, when you have to basically testify under oath, how did they do that on audio? Do they say, do you agree to a testify under oath that all these things are true and blah, blah, blah. Is that right. how they do it? Yeah. yeah. You, um, they, they read, they read to you for about, uh, or the individual reads to you for about six minutes every aspect of what your communication is going to be and uh, all the legalities that you're putting yourself under should you perjure yourself in any way or not tell exactly what happened to you in, in a truthful manner. Huh, how about that? Yeah, I was wondering how all that, that went. Now, I understand some people went, some people that lived near them went, but I, you know, they would, they, I, they didn't offer to fly me to DC. I, I think in this next communication that they will, uh, from what I've been told, but uh, through other sources. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, do you ever regret not telling them when you were briefed right after the incident about the beings? Do you ever regret that? Oh. I would have never obtained the Q clearance had I done that. I wouldn't have stayed in a personal reliability program had I done that in 1977, Martin. You but I, but, but isn't, isn't the UFO a, a really big deal? I mean, w w that seems like that if that was going to make a difference, that would also? For you to say you saw this big, huge object over the, you know I mean? Well, I said all of that, but I never saw, said what I saw at my at the right side of my window. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's good reason for that. I mean, really, there, you know, you just in 1977, I know we're all a little open minded today because it's being spoken about so yeah. much but in that particular day, man, they'd have, they'd have laughed you right off that base. They would said this guy is mental and he's gone, which, you know, not long after that, I received a, uh, a tour to Korea anyway, remote. So <laughs> they got me another way, but, uh, you know, Michael Johnson did show up at my apartment about 18 days later, two weeks. I later. remember you saying that. Yeah. And you drew a picture of you each drew a picture of right. the, of craft, the craft. whatever. But and you never brought up the beings with him. Oh no, no, no. He heard everything that I heard. Do not fear. He heard those things. He didn't say he didn't say what they looked like, but he said he oh, heard I see. exactly what they what they were telling him. And you know, this isn't a communication that you like you and I are speaking or people are hearing right now. This is a communication that travels through simply every cell in your body to your brain. I, I guess it's yeah. as if it, it travels a liquid form of vibrations through you. And, uh, that's how you're communicated with, you know, I, I, I don't know how else to, to, uh, describe that. I remember you, I remember you talking about that and that's, uh, that's a very unique thing. I haven't heard, that before, but um, not it's not surprising at all. Um, let's see. Let me just see what this question is. 
And I'm going to ask if uh, if you in chat would like to ask a couple more questions. We're going to be closing the show pretty quickly. But if you have any questions, please put it in caps. Uh, let's see. Did they provide any information on the incident that was new or unknown to you before the meeting? Are they... Uh, did they know what did AARO know the details of your situation? I believe yes. that's what they may be asking. Yes, they knew of it and they just wanted to hear it from me. Yeah. And they I, they asked me everything, you know, concerning that and what they had in front of them. And I filled in the blanks of what they didn't have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, as you know, Mario, you and I have talked about this, that uh, it's a possibility that coming up on this show that I'll be talking to some of them, not going to mention his name right now, but you and I have both spoken to. Um, so that, that, that will be a pretty big deal if that happens on this show. And I will say that uh, for those of you who are, I, I can't really give too much of a hint about anything of this right now, but it's going to be pretty, uh, pretty amazing. I'll just put it that way. And if you'd want to keep in touch with what's going on with the show, I, suggest that you may subscribe on uh, YouTube or also go to our website, podcastufo.com. Over on the right-hand side, you can join our mailing list and for any announcements, because I may be just doing a show um, unscheduled, and it's going to be really important. So, um, and okay, this is a good question that someone just posted here. John, thank you. What does Mario think about the David Grush interview? absolutely groundbreaking in every way. I mean, here's a guy that has so many clearances in the background. I don't even think honestly that Arrow or Congress or anybody quite knows what to do with Mr. Grush. I, I think you're right. He has <laughs> pinned them to the wall. Yeah. Now, mind you, you know, if, if what he says is correct, which we've all thought about, okay, you have technology here that's been fed to the masses over the last 90 years, whatever has been de-engineered uh, and, and brought out to us, could it be cell phones? Could it be light emitting diodes? I mean, can it be microcircuitry? Can everything that, that we've taken credit for, did it actually come from somewhere else? I mean, there, there's so much to what that man says. I would love to shake his hand and love to meet him. And I know people that know him personally and, he has the uh, highest credentials of anyone that that I know without any question whatsoever. So he's he's uh, he's has set a uh, a really high standard for anybody else to come up and and depose him in any way. He's just calling it like he sees it, and he's willing to stand up there and do that. And he's put everything about himself at risk. And right. I don't think that the uh, real quick. I don't believe that. Even with what's presented to Congress with what they, you know, the, what you sent me concerning the uh, the free pass for all the. Uh, yeah. For the for the weapons manufacturers, for, you know, for the yeah. whole industrial complex, you know, everybody's been given a piece of the puzzle and he states that. And then they're allowed to work with it as long as they can or as, or as much as they can until they can't figure it out any longer. Then they put that stuff away for five or six years until smarter, brighter, more energetic people come along. And they pull it back out to see what they can get out of it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, let's and, see. This right here, uh, I'm not really sure what Christopher means uh, because we have shown your letter that you got from them. All I did was blank out your email address. If that's what uh, 
is if that's what he's talking about. But here is the letter here, and I'm going to put that in the show notes. So there'll be a lot of information in the show notes. Anyone can yeah, check that out. Excuse the folds in it. It was in my pocket for two days. Yeah. <laughs> I just did a snappy of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, it worked. I got it here and it's, yeah. <laughs> uh, let me just see if there's any other questions and I think we're uh, good to go. Next okay. week is uh, July 4th. I'll still, at, at this time, I'm going, to, um, I'm going to be having a show next week here with uh, Christopher Stiles from up in, Nova Scotia, uh, about his book uh, that I wrote a forward for. It's a really great book. So here is a uh, another question here. Have you ever had contact with other missile workers who had similar experiences to yours? Not per se at Ellsworth, but elsewhere. Uh, yes, I have. Now, they were not in the field as I was. You know, a lot of people that I'm in contact with are that are in my so-called circle. I'm always looking for more. Uh, uh, were missile officers and what they experienced their rockets going offline, that kind of thing. You know, there's another thing that is not discussed very often when these when these rockets decided to cycle themselves to launch. Oh, that's so scary. Yeah, and there is a procedure for that. And, and I've been involved in that several times. And you simply um, jump in your vehicle as fast as you can with your partner and, and haul butt to that affected launch facility and you uh, place the vehicle on top of the blast door and put it in neutral and you face it in the direction of the uh, of the blast of the rails that are on the back of the door because it's going to blow off in that direction and this thing cycles itself like it's going to launch and the only way they can stop it literally is in hopes that when that blast door rips out of the ground there and takes off that that vehicle will fall down on top of it destroy the gyro and make the missile just go off course and just crash. You know, of course, there would be no nuclear release or anything like that. It'd be a conventional explosion of fuel because they were solid fuel rockets then, but I don't think they are anymore. But if that if that actually launched and it did not have anything happen to the gyro, that no one would know it was not a nuke. Russia would not know it's not a nuke, an active nuke heading toward them, right? I mean that. I mean that could have caused World War Three if uh, well, you know, every, everything's already, you know, pre-targeted. Uh, you know, so this thing has an object, uh, an, an objective. When it leaves the ground, it knows where it's going. Uh, but I, I, you know, it, it wouldn't be armed. And it would only be a yeah. conventional. But as you said, another another country wouldn't know that. You know, that's right. Yeah, so you see, see something that. coming in, and they just launch theirs. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's uh, funny. The only launch that ever took place on a Minuteman was at, um, I can't remember the year, but it was November 2 missile site, and it flew for 5.3 seconds, and it was destroyed, and it was a test to see if they would launch from the ground, which they did. And wow. uh, yeah. Let's see how many times did this happen on sites that I worked on. Uh, you mean like a... This the is, activation, yeah. Uh, I probably responded to like these automatic, these... Uh, uh, these erroneous launch conditions or whatever you want to call them, probably four or five times in, in four years. That is hair-raising. Yeah, and I wasn't the only one. There's many others. I mean, that's just a standard procedure to stop it, you know. But it never happened. It'd get down to, you know, 10, 15 seconds, and all of a sudden go back to normal. So, you know. That, is, you, just, that yeah. is just so scary. <laughs> but anyway, Mario, you've been a real pleasure. Uh, it's, been, it's been such a, a nice time knowing you this uh these last few years
You and uh, this has been a really a good show, and I hope uh, people out there have enjoyed it. Thanks. So, all right. So you take care, and we'll talk soon. All right. All the best. All right. Yes. All right, everyone. So that is it. I'm not sure what is happening here. Okay, here we go. All right. That's it, everyone. Thank you so much. And uh, like I said, next week we'll be back. And make sure that you find a way to uh, stay in touch with us because we have uh, something pretty important coming up. Uh, I do believe it's not 100% confirmed. Otherwise, I would talk about it. But anyway, uh, make sure you uh, either get on our mailing list or subscribe to this YouTube channel so you can see what I'm talking about. It should be coming up fairly soon because time is of the essence. So thank you all very much. Remember to keep your eyes to the sky.